Our Old Testament reading and the sermon text is Proverbs chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. This is the word of God. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. She sent out her maiden. She cries out from the highest places of the city. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live, and go in the way of understanding. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years of life will be added to you. If you are wise... You are wise for yourself, and if you scoff, you will bear it alone. A foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knows nothing, for she sits at the door of her house on a high seat by the highest places of the city to call to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Stolen water is sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your wisdom. We pray that you would be present with us by your spirit to open our eyes, that we would see true wisdom that we would see your son Jesus, and that we would be like him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. The book of Proverbs is, as many of you know, in a part of our Bible normally called the wisdom literature. That's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. It's a book about wisdom, about living the wise life, living the good life. And yet the book of Proverbs doesn't begin with what we normally think of as Proverbs. It doesn't start out with short, pithy sayings about truths about life or things to ponder. Instead, Proverbs frames wisdom, the pursuit of wisdom, in the terms of a young man, a young prince specifically, choosing a wife. The first nine chapters are composed of poems that introduce us to two women who compete for the prince's attention and affection. Lady Wisdom is introduced in chapter one in the street, exhorting the simple to abandon their folly and warning them of the consequences if they refuse to hear. That's verses one or chapters 1, verses 20 through 33. 
Chapter 2 introduces us to the second woman, the adulteress, or folly. Her ways are the ways of death. We see her in chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. She's a loud, and as our text says, clamorous woman who preys on the simple. Throughout the early chapters, the prince's father, a wise king, encourages his son to pursue Lady Wisdom and warns him about the dangers of pursuing folly instead. Wisdom, he says, will bring life and riches and honor. Folly brings poverty, shame, and ultimately, death. Her house is a highway to the grave. In the first nine chapters, we're invited to look at the two alternating pictures of the women and their work in the world, interspersed with exhortations from the Father to choose wisdom. And then we come to our text, chapter 9, and its poem ends our introduction to the book and brings the two women that we've heard so much about side by side. While most of the book of Proverbs draws great contrasts between wisdom and folly, between righteousness and wickedness, between faithfulness and idolatry. Chapter 9 puts them both side by side, and it's striking here that both wisdom and folly are speaking to the same person or the same group of people, and they are saying strikingly similar things. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Both speeches are aimed at the simple, at the beginners, at those who are not yet committed to a way of life. And we are confronted in Proverbs chapter 9 with two women, two ways, two tables from which to eat. The prince is confronted by a choice of two women bound up in two divergent destinies. Placing them side by side at the beginning of the book is a way of drawing us into the same moment and the same choice. Which way will you choose? Wisdom or folly? Which table will you eat from? Ultimately, the choice is one between life and death. Verses 6 says, Forsake, the, forsake foolishness and live. Go in the way of understanding. And verse 18 says that the guests of folly are in the depths of hell or the realm of the dead. So the choice is stark. It's between idolatry and faithfulness, righteousness and wickedness, between life and death. And note that the choice is ultimately individual. Verse 12, if you are wise, you are wise for yourself. And if you scoff, you will bear it alone. So the choice is put before us when the two wisdom in the two tables, or the two women in the two tables. I want to consider the text, the, the chapter as a whole, and then zoom in on some of the themes that it's, that it's showing us in the way of choosing wisdom and folly. As I said before, Lady Wisdom and Folly are brought side by side in this chapter. Wisdom is described in verses 1 through 6, and folly in verses 13 through 18. We're also given a middle section, verses 7 through 12, 
which underscore the necessity of humility and the whole structure of the chapter. On one side we have Lady Wisdom, at the end we have Lady Folly, and the whole chapter points to this middle section in 7 through 12 to verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One, understanding. The author is trying to tell us that between the two women, the key to choosing wisdom over folly is the fear of the Lord. It teaches us that in Scripture, folly and wisdom are not matters of the intellect. It doesn't have to do with intellectual RPM. It's not that the smartest people are wise and those who are unlearned are foolish. In Scripture, wisdom and folly are moral categories. It's interesting to see just how much Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly embody and personify those traits. Wisdom, you'll see in the first section, is active in doing. She built a house, hewed pillars, slaughtered meat, mixed wine, furnished a table, sent maidens. She's crying out. All in verses 1 through 3. Everything about wisdom is active and in the past tense. Wisdom has been looking ahead and preparing and everything is ready. This is a theme that's going to carry its way all throughout the book of Proverbs. That wisdom is doing. Wisdom is looking ahead. Wisdom sees what's coming. In contrast, folly talks. And sits, verses 13 and 14. A foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knows nothing, for she sits at the door of her house to call to those who pass on their way. Folly, Lady Folly in our chapter, just like Folly out in the world, has all of the promises and none of the action. Folly has all of the promises and none of the action. Folly is always about tomorrow. It's always about getting to it later. At her feast, wisdom offers her bread and her wine. Verse 5, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. While folly only seems to offer a feast, giving the vague statement that stolen water, which is quite a downgrade from mixed wine, is sweet, and that bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Folly hints that she has these things in her house, but she's not able to produce them. She's offering the work of others, but produces nothing. And in fact, her feast brings together Two of the paradigmatic images of folly in the introduction of Proverbs, that of theft and adultery. Theft and adultery both have the promise of the payout, all of the benefit and none of the work. Wisdom, on the other hand, generously offers from her own labors And she has it ready and can produce it with her. So these are the picture of the two women placed before us, placed before the prince. 
as he's looking for a wife, as he's looking for someone to marry and commit his life to, we're pressed with the same choice, with the same two options. And the two pictures point again to our middle section, showing us that the fear of the Lord is the key to making a wise decision. So that's our summary. This is, this is how the whole chapter sort of functions. Let's consider some of the themes that we see. I think it's worth it for us to ask why wisdom and folly are given here under the figure of two women. Isn't that interesting? Why isn't, why isn't wisdom a sage or a philosopher or, or someone like an architect? Why isn't the symbol of wisdom a schematic drawing? Or an accountant telling you how to shift around your money and where to invest. Why is wisdom and folly women? Why is the dramatic situation of the book a son needing to pick a spouse? This tells us that the quest for a wife and the quest for wisdom considered more broadly are compared to one another. And it tells us something about wisdom That it's not something that you just possess intellectually, but it's something to which you must give your heart. It's something to which which you must pursue. It's something to which you must give your life as a man gives his life to his wife. The pursuit of wisdom instead is lifelong. We're not going to simply read through the book of Proverbs and uh, have obtained all of the wisdom that God wants for us. That's one of the lessons of the book of Proverbs, is that the pursuit of wisdom is a continual thing. We should become acquainted with wisdom when we're young and committed to living a wise life when we leave our parents' house, just like the young prince. But our commitment to living a wise life should deepen and mature the way a good relationship between a husband and a wife does. We grow ever more acquainted with the way of the Lord and the way of wisdom as we age, if we continually pursue and love her. In passing, I should also mention that the comparison runs the other way as well. If if pursuing wisdom is like pursuing a wife or finding a spouse then the person that you, whom you choose to marry is of critical importance. The Proverbs teaches us that the, person, the people that we spend time with, we become like. That if someone spends time with the wise, they will become wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Proverbs 13, 20. So whom you choose to marry... Has a, goes a long way in determining whether you will ultimately become a fool or whether you will ultimately become wise. This is someone that you're going to spend a lot of time with. Whom you marry really does matter. So if you're a young man or young woman looking to get married, what are you looking for in a spouse? Are you looking for a wise spouse? And more importantly, for our young people, and for all of us. Have you married wisdom itself? Have you chosen wisdom itself? Characterizing 
wisdom and folly as women, also tells us that both wisdom and folly are a matter of loves and affections and appetites and not just a simply a matter of intellectual abilities. Reference this before that wisdom and folly are matters of loves and affections and appetites and not simply a matter of intellectual ability. That's something that we need to keep in mind as we see the women offering us two feasts and two tables. That bottom section of the chapter, verses 13 through 18, really does teach us something about temptation. It's a temptation scene. The foolish woman is clamorous and simple. She sits at the door of her house calling out to people, calling out to young men on their way, tempting them. And making wisdom and folly under the figure of women shows us something about temptation, that when we're tempted by sin or we're tempted by foolishness, we're not just dealing with a bad idea. We're not just dealing with something that has a bad return on investment, but we're dealing with something that calls out to our appetites. Food calls out to our appetites, to things that we want and we desire. It's astounding just how many of the temptation scenes in Scripture involve food. Beginning in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are placed in the garden. They're given trees, uh, fruit to eat, and they're given one tree not to eat. And the temptation that Satan brings them centers in on food. In the wilderness, when the Israelites are wanting to return to their slavery in Egypt... What they continually reference, what they continually talk about as they remember their slavery in Egypt, as they want to go back under the yoke of Pharaoh, is the food that they had there. We remember the leeks and the onions and how our bellies were full. Here the temptation to folly and sin is again set before us in the figure of food. Sin appeals to our appetites, our desires. Sin appeals to our lusts. That's what the book of James says. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires or his own lusts and enticed. That's what sin does. That's what sin calls out to. This is why we can see someone doing something out in life that's manifestly foolish that obviously is going to go bad for him, and he still continues to do it. It's why you're able to see people out there doing foolish things, and they continue to go back to it over and over again. We say things to ourselves like, doesn't he see that if he spends that money, he won't have any for rent? Doesn't he see how much hitting the bottle is destroying his family and his relationships? Well, in a sense, yes. We do see. He does see. We do know. But folly isn't calling out to our intellects only. It's not just a bad idea. Folly is inviting us to indulge our lusts. And it's not just the lusts of the flesh that can be indulged. Anytime we give way to anger, we're indulging a lust. Anytime we throw a pity party, we're indulging a lust. Anytime we watch that movie in our head that has everybody in the family not considering what we need and what we want and what would be good for us, we're indulging a lust. 
there is a certain payout that comes from giving in to these types of sins. And every time we do, and every time we are tempted to do that, that is Lady Folly talking to you right then. That is Lady Folly sitting at the door of her house calling out to you right then. Won't it feel good to just vent? Won't it feel good to tell her off? Come, she says, eat the bread and drink the water. Isn't it sweet? And it is for now. But the other thing that that Lady Folly shows us is that Folly is focused on the present. She doesn't open her window and show us that her guests are in the depths of hell. She simply holds out the bread and water. She doesn't invite us to look in the future and to see the broken relationships or the empty bank account. Those who choose to marry Folly or to eat from her table are focused on their appetites in the present moment. In scripture, I think the ultimate scripture example of this is someone like Esau. You remember Esau in the book of Genesis when he sold his birthright to Jacob. He comes in from out in the field and Jacob is there cooking stew and, and Esau says, give me, give me some of that stew. And what you have to remember is at that point, Esau is the crown prince. Esau has the inheritance coming. Esau has the blessing in the book of Genesis. And he comes in from the field. He sees Jacob there cooking his meal and he says, give me some of that stew. And Jacob says, okay, but sell me your birthright. Sell me the inheritance. And Esau says, I'm going to die. What, is, what, what good is an inheritance to me? And he goes ahead and he takes the stew. He could not wait an hour, a couple hours, whatever it is, for someone else to make him dinner. He had to have it right then and right now. He was a man controlled by his appetites. And he did exceedingly foolish things like trading his birthright for one meal. That's why the book of Hebrews holds up Esau as the example of an unholy and profane man. Wisdom, or sorry, excuse me, folly is offering what wisdom offers almost and unrighteously. Folly offers what wisdom offers almost and unrighteously. She says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Compared to verse 5, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. It's close, but it's not the real deal. Satan offered Adam and Eve the knowledge of good and evil without having to mature or obey God. And they did get that knowledge in a twisted kind of way. It does say their eyes were opened, just like Satan said it would be, but it was the fall of the human race. Later, Satan would offer the kingdoms of the world to Jesus without having to go to the cross. But Jesus acted wisely and resisted the temptation. The adulteress of Proverbs is offering the pleasures of the marital bed without the vows and bread without the work. But in the end, it's always death. So Proverbs 9 teaches us about temptation, and it tells us that when we're tempted, 
One of the things we need to train ourselves to do is look to the future. Look ahead. Where is the path that we're on going? Proverbs 9, the whole book of Proverbs, really, as many of you know, is just a phenomenal instruction manual for training children in righteousness. And this is what the wise king is doing throughout the entire introduction. He's exhorting his son, his prince, to look ahead. Where is the path going? Who will you marry? Folly says that, or Proverbs says that folly is bound up in the heart of a child, and yet the rod discipline will drive it far from him. And that's why Proverbs is a, is a great book for inculcating the ability to look ahead. Discipline shortens that time frame. It bridges the gap between foolish acting and negative consequences. That's what we're doing. We're disciplining children because we want to be like the wise king in the initial chapters who's teaching his, his son to look ahead to see where this is going. Because if we, we lack the ability to look ahead and see where it's going, verse 18, we don't know that the dead are there and her guests are in the depths of hell. The older people among us are supposed to have more wisdom because we've been around long enough to see the connections a few times over and to know how certain scenarios will play out. But because folly appeals to something more than our intellects, it appeals to our appetites, we need something more than to just be informed because the truth is when we're acting foolishly, when we're sinning, most of us know that we're sinning and the consequences will be bad later. What we need is actually other appetites. We need new loves, new desires, and new affections. We need to learn to hunger and thirst for righteousness, as we've been reading just a few weeks ago. And this brings us to wisdom's feast. Remember what I said earlier, both wisdom and folly are a matter of love and affection and appetites and not just intellectual abilities. In the poem, Wisdom is a Woman, but wisdom sets out a feast. And when you attend a feast, you enjoy it. When you attend, feasts require lots of planning and lots of expense on the front end, but when you're at the feast, when you're actually sitting down at the table, you don't execute it like a football play. You enjoy it. It's there to savor. The wise and righteous life, then, is something to be savored. That's why we call it the good life. For example, Proverbs says that the rest of the laborer is sweet. The sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether he has little or much. And you know from example that when you, from experience, that when you've put in a hard day of work, that hitting the pillow at night is like the dessert of life when you're just bone tired. It's something that's enjoyed. It's something that's savored. It's amazing how much wisdom is compared to luxury in the early chapters of Proverbs. Wisdom is given as a garland, as a crown, as a gold chain, things that are enjoyed just in and of themselves, even without utility. This means that training our children, for example, in the way of righteousness, is far more about inculcating wise and holy appetites and loves than it is about ticking all of the boxes. In fact, it's entirely possible to tick all of the boxes 
and not inculcate love. This will completely circumvent the greatest commandment that God's given us, which is to love the Lord our God with all our heart. Certainly, if we love God, we will obey him. But it's entirely possible to have the checklist of rules and to hit all of the, uh, the boxes without actually inculcating love. So how do we do that? This is why wisdom is a feast. Wisdom tastes a certain way. And if we've chosen wisdom and are regularly eating at her table, we'll desire and love her food and teach others, like our children, to love it as well. And this is, this is the way that we teach anybody to love any food. One of the a striking thing about if you travel to different states, different countries, different places, people eat different things, and they love it. I remember on a, um, on a trip once in Africa, there was a group of people who were, um, they were cattle herders, and their absolute favorite meal was to take the milk that they had gotten from their cows and put it in vats and let it spoil for about three, four weeks, and then eat it kind of partially congealed. And so this was one of the things that anytime you went out and you were going to visit this group of people, you just had to steal yourself and know this, this could happen. <laughs> you know, this, this might go poorly for me, um, which is why you also packed a packet of sugar anytime you'd go out, and that helped a lot. But how did, how, did those, how did those people come to love? How did those children grow up just loving this dish, this congealed, spoiled milk? Well, it's what, their, it's what their parents gave them. They were taught from a young age that this is good, this is a delicacy, this is what we love, this is our tastes. On the positive end, this is the way that, that my family is. Every Christmas, Christmas we make Polish food, and we love, um, we love to make food from where our family is from. And maybe you've got traditions like that. Different states have different takes on barbecue and what's good and the way that our um, tastes are developed is by being with our family and seeing what our family savors and enjoys and inculcates teaching our children and teaching each other within the church to live the wise and the righteous life is like teaching children to enjoy food but because we're all born fallen people in Adam, and because of our remaining flesh, our desires, the remaining flesh in us, we're like people who have the desire to eat wet cat food. And the process of the spirit and sanctification is bringing us to become more and more like the kind of people who can enjoy real food, who can enjoy the true food, who can enjoy wisdom and righteousness. We need to become real men and women who can sit at a table and enjoy a true feast. To grow in wisdom is to train our appetites to delight in the ways of God and hunger and thirst out of, for righteousness. And at its foundation, this means delighting ourselves in Jesus Christ, in his gospel, in his word, in worship, in him. Christ is our wisdom from God, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1, 24. 
But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The message of the cross, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus seems like foolishness to the world, but it is the wisdom of God and the power to save sinners. Wisdom, Proverbs says, is to understand judgment, justice, and equity in chapter 1. And you'll remember that when, when Solomon cried out to God and asked for wisdom, it was so that he would be able to render just judgments for the people. And the very next story in 1 Kings 3 is when the case is brought before him of the two women and the one child. The two, both women are claiming the child is mine and there's no other witnesses, there's no other way for someone to figure out who does this child really belong to, what's the righteous thing to do, what's the just judgment to make. And with the wisdom that God give, had given him, Solomon's able to see right through the situation and determine who the child belonged to. But Jesus is our wisdom from God, and we see the wisdom from God in the cross of Jesus Christ. The ultimate, the divine sort of judgment that needs to be made is how can God be just and uphold his justice and justify those who believe? How is God able to pour out all of his wrath and exercise all of his holiness and righteous judgment and pour out all of his mercy on sinners? It's sort of the ultimate dilemma horns that Paul references later on. And the answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. In the cross of Christ, God is able to pour out all of his wrath on all of our sin and place it on the eternal Son of God. And in the cross of Christ, God is able to pour out all of his grace and mercy on us sinners. This message, Lady Wisdom said, is for the simple. If any of you are wise according to this world... Become fools that you may become truly wise. The message is simple. See Jesus, hear the word of the Lord, and believe it. Ultimately, the training of our loves and appetites is a matter of worship. Remember what we said a couple times. The key verse in this chapter is verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To reverence him, to worship him is the beginning of wisdom And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If we look closely, we'll see that wisdom's table is set up in the temple. It says in verse 1 that she's built her house, which is the word for the temple in the Old Testament. The temple is God's house. She's hewn out her pillars, which feature prominently in the temple. She's slaughtered or sacrificed her meat mixed her wine and furnished her table, things that we find in the temple. The table of wisdom is set in the context of worship. And likewise, Jesus Christ offers us himself here every week in the context of worship. And we are invited to sit down and see and savor and take Christ by faith in the bread and wine, which is exactly what wisdom offers us. Come, she says in verse 5, eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I have mixed. We're invited to taste the bread and wine that the eternal wisdom of God has set for us. Worshiping God through Jesus Christ and delighting in him is foundational to the wise and righteous life. 
as we delight ourselves in Christ and feed on him by faith, our appetites will be changed more and more, and we will hunger and thirst for righteousness, and we will begin to live wise and righteous lives. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word and for your ways, for setting before us each and every week Jesus. We pray that we would see him, that we would be like him. In Jesus' name, amen.